Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Casey. Grab a cup of coffee and let's get our fix. Welcome back, addicts. This week, we are going to be kicking it with the bros. Not literally, thankfully, but figuratively. We are out near the U.S. nation's capital in Virginia while we talk about the Briley gang. Uh, We are drinking a hazelnut mocha, trying to get in the spirit of fall. And we are shouting out Michelle C., Renee T., and Ludus S. They have liked, commented, rated, shared, reviewed, or donated. So we want to thank you guys so much. We are so grateful for the support that you guys have been giving us with our podcast. And we love you guys a whole bunch. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode, please donate, like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, or IG. And on the World Wide Web at CrimeAddictsPodcast.com. On our website, Addicts, you will find a spot where you can submit case recommendations, find our delicious coffee recipes, and there's also a pretty sweet donate button. So if you're an Amazon shopper like myself, go ahead and click our Amazon link. It will redirect you to the Amazon site or app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. In a stable home on the northeast side of Richmond, Virginia, three baby boys were born to James Daryl Briley Sr. and Bertha Briley. The three boys were Linwood Earl Briley, the oldest brother, born on March 26, 1954, James Daryl Briley Jr., who was the middle brother born just over two years later on June 6, 1956, and Anthony Ray Briley, who was the youngest of the trio, born on February 17, 1958, less than two years after the middle sibling. Their mother worked as a food service employee at Virginia Union University, and their father was a longtime employee of a local concrete and pipe company. A fourth older son has lived in another state for years and was not involved in their lives much. Their brothers were regarded as citizens who would help neighbors fix cars or mow lawns. Yet a surreal and dark world existed inside their house on 4th Avenue in Highland Park. The three boys collected exotic, deadly pets such as tarantulas, piranhas, and boa constrictors. I can't even imagine these being allowed in my home, let alone wanting them there when I was growing up. The brothers were also engaging in zoo sadism as well. Um, so zoo sadism, if you don't know, is the pleasure derived from cruelty to animals. So, for example, they would watch when they would feed mice to their live boa constrictor and they would get excitement out of that. So definitely a red flag there. James Briley Sr. was very unhappy with how the boys were behaving and was 
unnerved to the point that he would padlock his bedroom from the inside overnight. Bertha even moved out of the house as she did not feel safe. Truly, the boy's father was the only person that they feared, but it seems like he feared them just as much or if not more because he didn't even believe that he would make it through the night. (laughs) I mean, he had to padlock his door. That's crazy. Linwood was the calculating leader of the Briley brothers gang. So Linwood being the oldest kind of led the other boys in the direction through life and everything that they did. Another young boy by the name of Duncan Eric Meekins lived on the same block as the brothers and would hang out with them regularly as part of their crew, which later proved to be a bad decision on his part. On January 28, 1971, the then 16-year-old Linwood was home alone. He took aim with a rifle from his bedroom window and fatally shot a next-door neighbor, 57-year-old Orlean Christian. As she passed by her windowsill while hanging laundry in her backyard. She had just buried her husband, so relatives thought stress might have caused a heart attack. The crime almost went undetected. However, when the funeral home returned the house robe she had been wearing, the family noticed a small bloody hole in the back and noticed a small bloody mark on her back behind her armpit at the viewing and asked the funeral director to re-examine the body. Upon a second examination, the director found a small caliber bullet wound in her back. Police investigators were contacted and they sought to find the source of the gunshot. Standing at the open window in her home where Mrs. Christensen was killed, a detective used a sheet of plywood to represent her body with a hole cut out to represent the bullet wound. He soon determined that the bullet could have only come from the Briley home next door. There, a search warrant was executed and the murder weapon was found. Linwood admitted to the crime with indifference, quote, I heard she had heart problems, so she would have died soon anyways, end quote. At trial, Linwood's lawyer convinced the judge that the shooting had been an accident, so Linwood was sent to reform school to serve one year sentence for the killing. James Jr. followed in his older brother's path. At 16 years old, he was sentenced to time in juvenile hall for pulling a gun and firing at an officer during a pursuit. Warren Van Such, a veteran prosecutor, once stated that James Jr. had the face of a man who was born to die in the electric chair. Quote, he wasn't bright like Linwood, and he was cold, end quote. In 1979, the city of Richmond and surrounding suburbs would be changed forever when the reign of terror tormented the city for the next eight months. Starting on May 12, 1979, in Henrico County, Virginia, Linwood knocked on the door of William and Virginia Busher. Mr. Busher figured it was just the paper boy coming to collect the payment as always. Instead, a man Mr. Busher didn't know told him his car was broken down and asked him to call AAA. Mr. Butcher said he would be glad to call for him and told the man to give him his AAA card. Linwood fumbled around and pulled out a card. Just when Mr. Butcher cracked open the screen door to accept the card, the stranger produced a gun and barged inside, waving Anthony inside, his brother. Mrs. Butcher looked up and saw a man walking toward her with a gun at her husband's head and a knife at his throat. One of the men warned her not to make any noise or they would cut off his ear. 
The bushers were forced to lie on the floor in separate rooms. They were tied up with rope. Mr. Busher believes the person who tied him up was Duncan Meekins because he seemed especially young and green, like he didn't know what he was doing. Mr. Busher kept telling him not to tie the rope too tight because it would hurt. And Duncan obeyed, a fact that probably ended up saving the Busher's lives. So as they went through the house, the boys, they doused every room with gasoline, including on Mr. Busher's legs as he lay on the floor. They soaked a nearby sofa, put clothes under the table in the dining room, all kinds of things to get this fire to just ignite. As they left, they lit the match and tossed it on the fuel, leaving them to just basically burn alive and die on the floor in their home. The two brothers quickly grabbed their stolen goods and sped off. Soon, flames were obviously engulfed everywhere, so the smoke alarm was going off, and Mr. Busher managed to miraculously free himself and his wife from their restraints and escape just before the house became engulfed in flames. So, the Brileys stole the couple's car and abandoned it. They took two televisions and other items, including his 32 caliber gun and his police scanner. Mr. Busher, now 88, believes he was saved by the inexperience of Duncan Meekins. On October 21st, 1979, a vending machine serviceman by the name of Michael McDuffie was murdered at his suburban home with use of force. He was shot in the head by the gang and they proceeded to steal valuables before fleeing the scene. On April 9th, the gang followed 76-year-old Mary Gowen across the town from her babysitting job, then raped, robbed, and shot her outside her home. She initially survived the attack, but slipped into a coma the next day and ended up dying days later at the hospital. On July 4th, 1979, a 17-year-old boy by the name of Christopher Phillips was spotted hanging around Linwood's parked car by the gang members. Suspecting that he might have been trying to break into the vehicle, the gang surrounded him and dragged him into a nearby backyard. There, he was pinned to the ground by James Jr., Anthony, and Duncan. Philip screamed for help, but was silenced forever as Linwood dropped a cinder block on Christopher's skull, killing him. On September 14th, disc jockey John Gallagher, a.k.a. Johnny G., was performing with his band at a South Richmond nightclub. Stepping out between sets for a break, he inadvertently walked straight into the Briley gang. Unfortunately for Johnny G., the gang had been looking around town for a victim all night. They decided to lie in wait for whomever might happen to step outside. Johnny G was jumped by Linwood and then manhandled into the trunk of his own Lincoln Continental. He was then driven out to Mayo Island in the middle of the James River, where the remnants of an abandoned paper mill stood. There, he was removed from the trunk of his Lincoln Continental and Linwood shot him dead at point-blank range. His body was then dumped into the river. The gang took just $6 from Johnny G's wallet and divided the money among themselves. His pearl-gray Lincoln Continental was recovered the day after he disappeared, and his hairpiece was found nearby. Fishermen found the body two days later, partially submerged in the James River. On September 30th, 62-year-old private nurse Mary Wilfong was followed home to her Richmond apartment. The gang surrounded her just outside of her door, and Linwood crushed her skull with a baseball bat. 
They then proceeded to enter the apartment and stole all of her valuables. Several days later, on October 5th, just two blocks from the Briley home, 79-year-old Blanche Page and her 59-year-old boarder, Charles Garner, were both brutally murdered by the gang members. They likely didn't know Blanche was blind, nor that she was upstairs and found her when ransacking the home, but her fate was already sealed. They bludgeoned her beyond death as she lay in bed, splashing the ceiling with blood. Charles was fatally assaulted with a variety of weapons, which included a baseball bat and five knives, a pair of scissors, and a fork. And this part is a little gruesome, but when Charles's body was discovered, he still had the scissors, knives, and a carving fork embedded in his back. The Briley gang lit a fire on his back with the yellow pages before fleeing the scene. Just horrific. For months, authorities found no pattern linking the crime scenes. Eventually, months of seemingly random mayhem started to mend together. Richmond and Henrico police were interested in a group of young men who seemed particularly aggressive and standoffish and practiced martial arts in a north side park, which happened to be the Briley Gang. On October 19th, James Jr. appeared in front of a judge for a status check hearing since he was still on parole for a 1973 robbery and malicious wounding conviction. At the hearing, he promised the judge that he was staying out of trouble, then proceeded to lead the gang out on a prowl for yet another victim later that evening. Henrico police investigator Shirley Englehart was alone in a surveillance van and heard James Jr. and Linwood arguing outside their house whether the police were inside the van watching him. James Jr. didn't think so, but Linwood did. The brothers walked up to the green Chevrolet van, looked through the tinted windows, and started shaking the vehicle. James Jr. fired a gun into the air and into the ground in their yard. If police were inside the van, James Jr. told Linwood they would have stormed out after the gunshots. That settled the argument and they got in their car and drove away. Still under surveillance at one point from the air and on the ground, the Briley's parked that night near a home in the 2300 block of Barton Avenue. Officers lost sight of the gang. It was then that longtime neighborhood friends of the brothers, Harvey Wilkerson, his pregnant wife, Judy Barton, and her five-year-old son were at their home when Harvey spotted the gang down the street and instinctively closed and locked his door. The action was noticed by the gang, so they proceeded to the Wilkerson residence and knocked on the front door. Terrified of their response if refused entry, Harvey opened the door and allowed them into his home. Both adults in the home were overpowered, bound, and gagged with duct tape. Linwood then manhandled Judy into the kitchen, where she was raped within hearing distance of the others. Duncan continued the sexual assault, after which Linwood dragged Judy back into the living room, briefly rummaged the premises for valuables, and then left the house. James Jr., Anthony, and Duncan then covered their victims with sheets. James Jr. told Duncan, quote, you've got to get one, at which point... They took a pillow, held it to Harvey's head, and Duncan took a pistol and fatally shot Harvey in the head. James Jr. then shot Judy four times in the head and put another round 
in the child's head, killing them both. The police who were conducting surveillance heard the gunshots and saw the gang hurry back to their car and drive off. But authorities didn't know where the shots came from, and they didn't detain them. The triple homicide marked the end of the rampage in the city of Richmond. The bodies were not discovered until three days following the crime. The Wilkerson's had pet snakes and the Briley gang had let them out before they left. So the animal control officers had to clear out the house and investigators couldn't even work the scene until that was done. Prosecutor Warren Von Scutch still remembers his shoes sticking to the blood caked floors as he walked through the house and the smell lingered on his clothes. He said when he got home, he peeled them off and just straight threw them into the trash. He didn't even try to get the smell out of them. The day after police discovered the crime scene, they arrested the Briley brothers and Duncan Meekins. Richmond City Police Investigator C.T. Woody Jr. chased down and captured Linwood near the intersection of East Brooklyn Park Boulevard and Meadow Bridge Road in Highland Park after Linwood jumped out of a car he was driving. The car, with James Sr. and Duncan inside, kept going and hit a telephone pole. Police caught Duncan then as well. Once Duncan was in custody, it didn't take long for Detective Sergeant Norman A. Harding to get him talking in the presence of his parents. He told investigators all about the violence of that year, linking the Briley's to crimes that the investigators had no idea the gang had even been related to or that they had committed. Duncan also told authorities something else that James Jr. did. He said before police had found the bodies on Barton Avenue that James decided he needed a better TV for his room to match all the stuff in his brother's rooms. So he went back to the Wilkerson's house, stepped past the bodies and carried off the family's TV. In exchange for this information and turning the state's evidence against the Brileys, Duncan was offered a plea agreement to escape the death penalty. The gang killed to eliminate witnesses to the robberies they committed, but they also seemed to take much pleasure in their work. They murdered with such versatility that police initially did not see a pattern. Together, the Briley brothers and Duncan Meekins killed at least 11 people. However, authorities believe they might have killed or severely injured as many as 20 people. Richmond police detective Leroy Morgan was a close friend of Johnny G's. After the Briley's were arrested in October 1979, Detective Morgan, although I wish he was a captain, (laughs) was called in to help with the interrogation. At that point, no one knew the Briley's were involved in Johnny G's death. Upon arriving at the police station, the first thing Detective Morgan noticed when he looked at Linwood was the turquoise ring on his finger. Suddenly, the detective felt sick. He recognized the blue and white ring with a distinguishing color. It had belonged to Johnny G, and Detective Morgan knew this because he was with him when he bought it. Quote, I'm not a violent person, but I sure could have. Well, it wouldn't have taken much for me to jump in. Detective Morgan said, adding that Linwood started mouthing off to him. Another detective told Detective Morgan to cool off. Morgan's recognition of the ring helped solve his friend's murder. Quote, I got some satisfaction out of that, Morgan said. Duncan escaped the death penalty per his plea agreement and instead received a life sentence. A single life sentence with parole eligibility was handed down to Anthony due to his limited involvement in the killings. 
Authorities couldn't prove he directly committed any of the killings. Under Virginia law, only the actual perpetrator of a capital murder is eligible for the death penalty. In other words, only the person who committed the physical act of murder or pulled the trigger is eligible for the death penalty in Virginia. Because of Virginia's trigger man statute, both James Jr. and Linwood received numerous life sentences for murders committed during the spree, but faced capital murder charges only in cases where they had physically committed the actual killing of the victim. There are numerous other states that we have seen around the country throughout our time doing research on these cases that have association laws, which basically means if Casey and I go somewhere together and I kill somebody, she's just as guilty as I am because she was there and associated with the crime. So in Virginia, theirs is just the opposite that only I would receive the death penalty for that because I was the only one who actually pulled the trigger. Linwood was sentenced to death for the abduction and murder of John Gallagher, while James Jr. received two death sentences for the murders of Judy Barton and her son. A Richmond judge presiding at one of the trials summed up the case following the verdict. Quote, this was the vilest rampage of rape, murder, and robbery that the court has seen in 30 years. End quote. Both were sent to death row in Mecklenburg Correctional Center in early 1980. There, they were disruptive inmates who used their sly intelligence and physical representation to threaten both fellow inmates and guards. They also ran a flourishing drug and weapon trade operated in the prison. Okay, so the story doesn't stop here. On May 31st, 1984, Linwood and James Jr., along with fellow inmates Lem Tuggle, Earl Clankton, Derek Peterson, and Willie Jones, broke out of Mecklenburg Correctional Center, a facility that was supposed to be escape-proof. Exactly 35 years later, ABC 8 News released an article where they interviewed correctional officers that worked at the prison at the time of the escape, titled 35 Years Later, Mecklenburg 6 Prison Break and His Lingering Impact on Virginia. Here is where the article reads in part. Six death row inmates on the run after escaping from prison. It happened 35 years ago in central Virginia and remains one of the boldest and most elaborate escapes in U.S. history. It would take nearly three weeks to capture all six of the escapees. The fallout in Virginia, however, would last much longer. Leading the crew of escapees were the infamous Briley Brothers of Richmond. The escape from Mecklenburg Correctional Center dominated the local and national news. Central Virginia was in a state of fear. Going through my mind at the time, former correctional officer Prince Thomas recalled, I hope they didn't kill me. Eight News recently sat down with four correctional officers. Three were working at the prison the day of the escape and came face to face with the escapees. Quote, as inmates, we are going into cell blocks. An inmate slipped into the bathroom adjacent from the control room. Former shift commander Larry Hawking said, that's when another inmate asked the control room to let him retrieve a paperback book. Quote, when he opened the control room, he overpowered the officer. Hawkins said he got into the control room, started hitting buttons, opening doors, and that's how they got access to the control room. That was just the beginning. The inmates in a well-planned escape 
they plotted after studying the officers and their procedures over time. They changed into uniforms and pretended to be guards. They radioed officers in other areas, luring them to buildings they now controlled. Quote, when I got at the top of the stairway, I saw an inmate. I knew he had an officer's uniform on, Hawkins said. So as I turned to go back the steps, that's when I met James Briley coming up the steps. He had a shank, put it to my neck, and said if I tried anything, he would kill me. Quote, I thought my time had come, you know. Officer Prince, Officer Prince Thomas faced a similar situation as he responded to the unit. Quote, when I got up there, I see inmate Joe Girantino in the control room. I knew something was wrong, he says Prince. I ran back down the stairs. James Riley and Lem Tuggle had come up behind me with shanks. Shanks around my neck, through my legs, end quote. The death row inmates made weapons from lawn equipment. Thomas came face to face with Linwood Briley, the mastermind of the escape. Quote, he had a lawnmower blade about like that, Prince said, demonstrating the size of the blade. With a rag wrapped around the end of it, he said, if I thought you were lying, I'd kill you now. They got me undressed, and that's when I saw all the officers on the step, lined up on the floor, going back to the shower. Officer Coraline Epps was in the control center when she was overpowered and taken prisoner. I just had a baby, Epps said. She was all I could think about, dying and not seeing my daughter anymore. Terrified she was about to get raped and killed, Epps was dragged to a room, and that's when she says one of the escapees, Earl Clanton, came to her defense, telling her quietly that he was a dad. He said, I'm not going to let anyone come in here and hurt you. You have my word, recalled Epps, and he didn't. He stayed right in front of the door. I think Earl Clanton saved my life. After that, they locked us all in the closet up behind the shower where the waterworks was. Prince explained, I repeated the Lord's Prayer. I know what I did. These guys were on death row, all of them in there for killing. The inmates now dressed as officers and using confusion with recent guard staff turnover to their advantage, ultimately convinced more guards to let them out by pretending to try and defuse a bomb on a gurney. They were rushing out of the building. But in reality, it was a TV they were rolling onto the gurney. They had a blanket thrown over it, says Hawkins. Fire extinguishers, they were spraying at it. They were like, they really had a bomb. They jumped into a prison van and disappeared into the night. Two of the escapees, Clanton and Peterson, were caught hours later, just across the state line in Warrenton, North Carolina. The other four had disappeared. Donald Baylor was among the hundreds of officers from the other prisons who were brought in to search for the escapees. He says he had never seen anything like it. You're looking behind every bush, says Hawkins. Every time you hear a door creak, you just don't know. A week or two later, more of the inmates were arrested in Vermont on their way to the Canadian border. The Briley brothers would last 20 days before they were captured, hiding out in a garage in Philadelphia, not far from their uncle's home. 
It would end the state of fear for the region, but it wasn't the end of the officers who had been taken hostage. None of the correctional officers were seriously hurt during the escape, but even 35 years later, that day still haunts them. The officers who felt pressure and scrutiny from some of their peers who blamed them for the escape. Epp said that she was treated in the following days of the escape made her feel worthless. I felt very unappreciated because I didn't give up my life. I was being blamed, she recalled. They didn't care if we lived or died. They put me on a lie detector test and tried to say I had part in the escape and I had failed the polygraph and let me go. Five officers lost their jobs. Epps was among them. Although she says she wouldn't have come back to work at the prison, even if she could have, she doesn't regret her actions that day. I couldn't overpower them to get them out of the control room. I did what I was supposed to do, Epps said. My survivor instincts kicked in when they told me what to do, and that's what I did. Officer Hawkins and Thomas also went through days of questioning, but both kept their jobs and both ultimately retired from the State Department of Corrections. They say the investigation in the days, weeks, and months after the escape led to immediate security changes to prevent another breakout. Mecklenburg was supposed to be escape-proof, said Don Baylor, who serves as the head of National Coalition of Public Safety Officers, a union representing Prentice a union representing prison officers. They corrected things after that. Among the changes, keeping death row inmates confined to their cells for most of the day, limiting how many guards had access to keys and blocking off stairwells where inmates were able to hide during their escape. They also installed cameras and started introducing new officers to the entire staff. Generally, it takes something to happen before we see our shortcomings, Baylor said. Baylor says he hopes that nothing like the Mecklenburg 6 breakout will ever happen again. He says that the state can never let down its guard, something that concerns him with facilities being short-staffed. Staff shortages are recipes for unfortunate events, says Baylor. All six of the death row escapees were executed. Lem Tuggle was the final member of the Mecklenburg Six to be put to death, and his execution was in 1996. The Mecklenburg Correctional Center closed in 2012. It has since been demolished, and the property has been given to the town of Boydton. Okay, this whole escape is almost comical, but also crazy to think about. I know it was back in the day and things were a lot different, but just to add on to that, both Briley's expressed strong interest in killing the officers that they had taken hostage. They went so far as to douse captive guards in lighter fluid and were prepared to toss in a lit match to complete the action. Like they were totally willing and able and capable and actually wanting to do this. But Willie Lloyd Turner stepped in the way of James Briley and forbade him from doing so. So that was one of the other inmates that was also escaping. But he told him, we can escape. You don't need to be lighting people on fire, basically. 
Meanwhile, Alexandria, Virginia, and cop killer Wilbert Evans prevented Linwin Briley from raping a female nurse who had been taken hostage while en route to delivering medication to inmates in the unit. So some of these people's lives were actually saved during this, and obviously that nurse was saved from being raped, and who knows if they would have killed her um, from the other inmates that were also escaping. But the Brileys were full-on ready to hurt as many people as they wanted to and as it took to get out of there. So splitting off from their two remaining free escapees at Philadelphia, the Brileys went to live with their uncle in the north part of the city. And when the Brileys escaped, Detective Morgan Sargent asked if he wanted any extra patrol units outside of his house for protection. But Detective Morgan declined the offer. He said that he had a 357 caliber Magnum at home. And if the Briley showed up, that that would be just fine with him because he was ready. So they never did show up, but I was glad to hear that they took into consideration the protection of others and safety of others. So the Briley's were captured on June 19th by a heavily firepowered and amassed group of FBI agents and police, and they were returned to Virginia. As we know, unless you're new here, when a person is convicted and receives a death penalty sentence, appeals are immediate and practically automatic. But without going into too much detail in this particular case, the appeals filed by James Jr. and Linwood, such as writs for habeas corpus, certiorari reviews, and ineffective assistance of counsels, were all denied and the original sentences were upheld. These cases were heard by some 70 different appellate judges or something like that, but they both ran out of their appeals. Duncan was briefly incarcerated at a Virginia prison away from the Briley brothers, then relocated to an out-of-state prison under an alias for his safety, which is where he remains today. He has been incarcerated for over 40 years at this point. He has been denied parole at least seven times. The two prosecutors that convicted the gang went to the parole board on Duncan's behalf to voice their support for his relief. As promised in his plea agreement, they stated that had he not provided them with the information that he did, they may not have been able to get capital murder charges for James Jr. and Linwood and that the crime spree would have continued to terrorize Virginia had it not been for him. He was only 16 at the time, and he was arrested and has only had one violation while incarcerated, which involved attempting to make a three-way phone call. Anthony is still incarcerated and being housed at the Augusta Correctional Center in Augusta County, Virginia. He comes up for parole every few years, but his application for parole has been denied by the parole board each time thus far. Linwood was executed by electric chair on October 12, 1984 at the state penitentiary in Richmond. James Briley was executed six months later on April 18, 1985, also by electric chair. Linwood left behind his son, Norman Laquan Ampey. However, Linwood's son was later serving time in jail for a bank robbery then died in 2015. James Jr. left behind three of his daughters who still live in Richmond, Virginia. Just weeks before he was executed, he married Evelyn Grant Reading in a prison wedding attended by his father. Both brothers are buried together in the Council Cemetery located near Bethel, North Carolina. 
At no point did either James Jr. or Linwood admit responsibility or express remorse for their horrific crimes. Rather, they seemed embarrassed only that they had been captured upon making their escape from Mecklenburg. Quote, there are homicides and there are homicides, said Hanover County Sheriff B. Stewart Cook, who oversaw the Briley investigation as a Richmond police major in 1979 and witnessed Linwood Briley's execution. Quote, what a brutal bunch of sons of bitches they were, end quote. Wow, Casey, that is quite the escape story. <laughs> That's kind of wild, actually. Uh you know, this case just, there were so many details and some information that I found during like investigating and looking up this case and trying to research it that I was like, where does all this even go fit in? Like there's so many miscellaneous pieces. So I want to talk about those before we get into our discussion questions really quickly, because just like that article you just read, it's the same thing. Like they're just so random. <laughs> it's just like, they're wild. Like, so for example, all the the brothers kept a scrapbook of newspaper articles detailing their exploits. Not only did they do this because they got enjoyment out of it, they also then waited for it to come out in the newspaper, kept the newspaper, and clipped it and scrapbooked it. Like, that seems a little extreme to me. Well, yeah, it's their 15 minutes of fame. They're not going to miss that for nothing. Like, yeah, that's true. I... <laughs> When I read that, I was like, they did what? I mean, we know that, you know, people will keep things or document it or things such as trophies and that kind of stuff that we'll see these weirdos keep after they commit these crimes. And like, obviously, they were stealing items from the locations. And so, you know, they were doing all kinds of home renovating and upgrades. But... I just thought that was crazy that that they went to the extent of, you know, collecting the newspaper, clipping the article and scrapbooking it. To me, that seems like they almost care too much, you know, for like their acts that they did. That just almost seemed like it was too much. It's kind of weird. Yeah, I I definitely see where you're coming from with that. It's like it's almost like one of those things that you only see in movies, you know? Right. How and you look back and you're like, how stupid are you? Like, obviously, if they ever find that, like, it's obviously going to be clearly linked back to you, like, you idiot. But, yeah. but like, it's just funny because it's, like, real life. But it seems like something that comes out of a movie. It's crazy. Yeah, it's just, I don't know. I felt like that was a weird detail that we had to talk about. But, you know, just kind of weird information. Um, So, another one is that... Obviously, in what we've talked about, like a lot of times we'll say, you know, oh, you know, they had a victim, but they survived and they lived to tell the story and all this stuff. For the Briley gang, there were not very many known survivors. So the Bushers were very lucky. Uh, I guess you could consider the correction officers survivors uh, and like that nurse and stuff, too. So they were very lucky as well. Um, there was also another anonymous male that claimed that he was in a home with a gang that showed up to rob them of their drugs and money. And this was just months before they were captured. So it was like right in the midst of their murder spree. Um, he goes on to detail this whole story about how there was like a child present in the home. It was like an apartment. Uh, I think, I think he was saying it was like an upstairs apartment and like he was kind of going into detail about it, but Luckily, in that encounter, nobody was killed. 
And so I guess you could consider them some more lucky souls, but it was just kind of interesting because we kind of thought that the Bushers were kind of their only known surviving victims. And then of course, if you include the, anybody that crossed their paths on their way out of the prison when they were escaping, of course, like that would be considered as well. But this man like came forward a long time later, uh, you know, like once he got out of the drug world and gang world and stuff, and he was still very much anonymous when he wrote this little article. So I don't know who he is or if it's even true. I mean, we know there's people that try to insert themselves into investigations and stuff like that. Um, so it could be nothing, but he wasn't necessarily claiming to be a victim or anything like that. And I don't even think anybody was harmed in that. He was just present at this apartment that was not his apartment uh, when there was like drug dealings going on and the Briley showed up and basically tried to rob them of their their drugs and money is what I could gather from this article or interview this anonymous person did. Yeah, again, it's kind of funny. It's kind of like a scene from a movie. And I feel like this is where like movies come from and like these crime shows and stuff because it's like, I don't know, it's weird to think about. But it's also like, did that person just say that just because or is that a real like encounter? It's something that I don't know if we will ever necessarily know 100%. But it's just interesting that it was never confirmed I guess yeah it totally is and that's one of the reasons I wanted to bring it up because it was something I found I couldn't necessarily like validate it but I thought I mean it's out there it's on the internet so you know may as well I guess discuss it but there's just not very many known survivors and with that being said this man's encounter with the Briley gang like I said they didn't show up and kill anybody so it's not like they killed everybody except for him or anything like that nobody was injured in this encounter but basically it kind of describes them as being like just very you know dominant and intimidating whenever they show up anywhere and they were definitely making a name for themselves and and building their own reputation so that's a for sure thing you know what another thing is that I think is frustrating about all of this too like you say, it's in a movie or it could be a scene in a movie or something like that. This is another part that I was thinking the same thing. It's frustrating to me that when Linwood was only 16 years old and he murdered his neighbor in cold blood, he only got a year in juvie as his punishment. Like, how is that even possible? That would not fly today. You cannot kill somebody and be like, cool, well, go spend a year in juvenile detention and you'll be set free. And that's it. No, no consequences at all. Right. And it's like, I don't know when this necessarily changed. And I know that each state varies. But like, a lot of times, if you commit a crime like that, you'll be tried as an adult, especially if you're 16. Right. <laughs> Some states, you are an adult. So it's like, there's no way that that would fly <laughs> you would not get one year it's definitely a different day and age i mean <laughs> the 60s and 70s definitely operated a lot differently when it comes to law enforcement than we do today and you know that's off of learned mistakes so maybe this is one of those <laughs> right that's a good point 
And maybe it's a good thing that we did learn from our mistakes because these boys murdered their victims in unimaginable ways. So let's just do a quick review, okay? Hang with me here. So they burned a couple. They used a cinder block to crush a man's skull. They used a baseball bat to beat a man to death. They violently raped a woman before ending her life. They used scissors, a bat, several knives, and a meat fork to kill another man and left those tools in his back, poured lighter fluid on him and lit him up, raped a pregnant mother within hearing range of her family, then proceeded to kill her five-year-old son in front of his parents before shooting them to death. That's like the definition of heinous and horrendous. I mean, we've talked about a lot of cases on this show, but I, I mean, there is zero mercy. Like they do not give a flying fuck, period. They lost them all. I don't know. They don't have any more fucks left. They lost them. I don't know if they ever had them. They're gone. It's crazy because each one of those by itself is bad enough. And then you just put them all together and it's like 10 times worse. Yes. Yes. Heinous on top of heinous on top of heinous. And you, it just duplicates and multiplies. It's horrible. It's horrendous. I, yeah, these, these guys deserved what they got. Uh, but speaking of that, what they got, um, in contrast to the other death row cases that we've looked at, few actually ended up rallying around to support Linwood and James Jr. because of the gruesome nature of the crimes and what many say was the helplessness of most of the victims. So even the NAACP, Normally, this is like an outspoken opponent of the death penalty because a large percentage of those sentenced to death have been black. So they generally support and advocate against the death penalty. But in this particular case, even the NAACP has been less than vigorous in the Briley case. Like they were not really speaking out too much and they even supported that they were getting what they got. Like nobody was standing there trying to rally on their behalf. And we read that in our cases, you know, we see that there are certain people, whether it be organizations or family members or even victim family members or something, you know, that they're trying to advocate for the death penalty to be taken off of their sentence for whatever reason and trying to support them through their appeal process and da 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 these guys had nobody like but their appeals were bullshit too you know they didn't have a whole lot so they were filing them because it's like kind of a mandatory process really just to show well we did everything we possibly could they even appealed it it was found even by you know a higher court or multiple courts that the ruling was correct from the beginning. So we are going to put them to death and nobody's going to feel bad about it because they're for sure guilty based on all these different courts, you know, and all these different people and the different judges and juries and all that stuff. And in this particular case, they had all of those appeal processes, but there was nobody there supporting them. And every single time their conviction was upheld. So it just goes to show, like, even the people who advocate against the death penalty find that it's hard to represent certain people under certain circumstances, you know, because that's rough. A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I don't care your race, religion, gender, beliefs, whatever. 
spirituality. I don't really care what it is. We can all agree that like the crimes that they committed were beyond unspeakable. Mm -hmm. And (laughs) there was no doubt that it like wasn't that there was nothing like, oh, no, they got it wrong. You know, there was never any of that. It was never anything like that. It was they did it. It's disgusting. It's horrendous. And period. So I just don't see like there's no real way for anyone to rally for you know, saying their innocence, um, you know, whether you advocate for the death penalty or not, I mean, you can agree that these crimes were horrendous and disgusting. And so, you know, does it fall under the statutes to qualify for the death penalty? Yes. And that's a fact. So like that state has the death penalty that qualifies under it. So, I mean, there's really no, <laughs> there's no way to really advocate. Like you said, the appeals, nothing, like nothing worked because there was nothing to support it. There was just, it was an, it was a closed case. Like it's crazy because had any of the guys spoken up and said, Oh, I didn't do what Duncan Meekin said that I did. Had any of them spoken up and said that and went against what he had provided investigators then they would have had a lot harder case because it was like, you know, he said, he said, basically. So some of it, there was evidence in some of the cases, but not in all of them. And so he starts talking to the investigators, telling them all this crap. They didn't even know that they were related to them. And then when they confront the other guys with it, they're like, okay, never did they say, no, I didn't do that. Like he's a liar, nothing. They didn't say anything. And so, because they were too prideful. It's like, okay, well, go electrocute to death then. I mean, what are we supposed to say? You know what I mean? You don't even want to protect yourself. What? Why would we put you in society? If you're not going to protect yourself, who are you going to protect? Who are you going to save? Who are you going to advocate for? How are you going to show any type of mercy? I mean, you never have so far. Right. And they wouldn't ever. That's the thing. Yeah. So, <laughs> so torch them. <laughs> That's how I feel about it. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, my gosh. Um. Okay, this is the last little fun fact that I found that I wanted to share with you, and then we'll move into our discussion questions, I swear. So in October of 2014, the Briley's childhood home was put on the market. (laughs) So it had previously been on the market. I think it went into like foreclosure and it had been condemned and the building, the structure was just not sound. So somebody came in and purchased the home that was intending on renovating it and remodeling it and you know for resale well then he learned about the history of the home he didn't know that at the time so he was just trying to get it off of his hands (laughs) this guy did not want anything to do with it so it was listed for only twenty nine thousand five hundred dollars and this is in 2014 (laughs) so um at the time when it was listed for just under thirty thousand dollars the house was actually valued at about $80,000. So you can tell he was really trying to get rid of it. Uh, he didn't care about making any type of profit off it. He just wanted it off of his hands. But something that we do have to note is that I'm sure it did get purchased and, you know, renovated. And I'm sure it looks beautiful. I don't know. But um, <laughs> something to think about is that, yes, that home has a history. And people that have lived in the area for a long time may know the history or, you know, if they lived in the neighborhood for a long time or their family has lived in the neighborhood or whatever the situation may be, they may know of the history in that home. But something 
to think about is that none of the murders or crimes happened there. Yes, they were raised there, but nothing horrendous happened in that home as far as these crimes are concerned. So I understand that it comes with a history, but there shouldn't be any like, you know, creepy spirits or (laughs) anything like that crawling around in there because like I said, they uh, did not commit their crimes in that home. So it does have a history and dude wanted to get rid of it, but I just thought that was funny that it came up on the market just as recently as 2014. I get that little hellions were raised there, but little hellions are raised everywhere. So right. it's like kind of petty. I wonder if the padlock kind of is petty. still on their dad's door. That's interesting. I, oh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It definitely has a history and I get it. But this developer was like, yep, don't want nothing from it. I'm washing my hands of it. He probably thought like, man, this not only doesn't have a history, it's probably like a ton of work. I mean... The building was mm. condemned, so he probably, you know, bought it thinking like, oh, I'll renovate it. It's going to be great. And then saw like the structure was sound and it needs to be completely torn down or something. And was like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> Basically, I would understand my assumption would be, okay. Basically, my assumption would be is that you would sell it basically just for the land would be my assumption. If it's that bad and that old, you know, right. it would just be looking to tear it down and, you know, build a whole new house on that lot. Right. But, okay, so that was the last of my little fun facts and uh, points that I wanted to talk about. But now let's get into our discussion questions. So discussion question number one, I kind of worked in up above when we were talking because it kind of just came up in the discussion before, but the question was um, how is it possible that Linwood got only one year of juvie detention after murdering his neighbor in cold blood at only 16 years old? And I think we basically said that, I mean, that's a different era in time. And that's really the only explanation that we have because he not only murdered her in cold blood, he had no remorse and didn't even try to deny it. So I mean, it must have just been a different day and age, you know, but hopefully our judicial system has learned from that mistake and, uh, you know, moving on and up. So that was my first discussion question. Okay. The second question that I have is, was Anthony involved more than what he was convicted of? And should he have received capital punishment like his brothers did? I spend a lot of time thinking about this question. So I actually, if you don't mind, want to give you some thoughts that I have around this. Do you care? Please, please do. I would love to hear what you have to say. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So my answer to this is both yes and no. And I know that's kind of a cop out, (laughs) but hear me out. So I believe there is no reason for Duncan Meekins to spare the truth about Anthony since he gave up the others and still put Anthony behind bars for the rest of his life. So if Duncan knew something about Anthony being involved in those crimes, why would he not have said it? Like, yes, he was the youngest, but they still all went to prison. Just the only difference was that Anthony and Duncan did not get executed. But we have to look at this from his standpoint. He was only 16 years old. And when he was being interrogated, he was literally there with his parents. 
Like, he's not going to know the difference. You know what I mean? It's not like he was being advised by an attorney like, oh, if Anthony is your friend, make sure you don't tell them X, Y, and Z. I mean, they're, he's not being advised, you know? So at only 16 years old of a kid that's just like running the streets, murdering people, you know, running amok, he don't, he's not going to know that. So. Right. That's a good point. I think that if it were up to Duncan Meekins and his confession, if you're looking at it from just that standpoint, I don't think that Anthony was involved anymore because Duncan would have said so. You know what I mean? There's no reason for him not to have said that. And you know, his parents probably were sitting there like, you better tell them the truth. Like, right. You know, I mean, any pro-social parents would be, you know, and I don't know. But so I wanted to put that out there. However, there are different ways to look at this. So another note onto that is if he did know about the law, why spare Anthony's life? Because he had to go into protective custody and go into prison in another state and all this stuff to for his own safety, where if he had told them everything, and let's say that that involved Anthony killing somebody, then Anthony would have been executed too, and his life wouldn't be on the line. So if he did know about it, it makes sense to rat on Anthony, even if maybe Anthony didn't do something, and he didn't. So to me, that shows me that he told them the truth, and they decided, per Virginia law, the trigger man rule, that they cannot execute Anthony. And I think that that's probably the truth as far as Duncan is concerned. Okay. The reason I say as far as he knows is because they have potentially been involved in crimes well before their neighborhood friend, Duncan Meekins joined in their little gang. You know what I mean? So I say as far as he knows, because Anthony could have potentially killed somebody prior to Duncan Meekins getting involved. And so all that Duncan was admitting to and testifying to and advising them of is what he was actually there for and what he witnessed and what he knew to be fact, which probably didn't involve Anthony killing anybody. But how do we know that that didn't happen either before he joined their gang? And or while he wasn't there, you know, maybe they were out running amok one night when he was at home eating supper and maybe Anthony did kill somebody and nobody knows about it. I mean, maybe there's still unsolved murders out there from that time that actually are attributed to Anthony. We just don't know because Duncan didn't tell them and the Briley brothers never spoke up about any of this. So we have to believe what he's saying based on the fact that they didn't try to come back and contradict it. And based off the things that I was just saying, you know, had he put Anthony in the chair, then he wouldn't be having to live his life in protective custody and having his name changed and having to move and all that kind of stuff. I mean, he wouldn't have to live his life like that. But I mean, I commend him for saying what he did say, you know, and he told them what he did know. And I think that's great. So as far as Duncan knows, I'm going to stick with. No, Anthony was not involved more than what he was convicted of and should not have received capital punishment per the Virginia trigger man law. But I am going to say as far as he knows, because I mean, we don't know if there was something else that went on that maybe Duncan just wasn't aware of that Anthony was committing murder 
on more crime. So that's kind of my thought on this. And we also have to look at the fact that forensics were not as advanced in that era. So I kind of wonder if there's any unsolved murders from like right around that location that and during that their little crime spree that maybe if they went back and ran DNA tests now, if that's still, you know, if they still have that in as their evidence, if they went back and reran it, if maybe they would be able to attribute it to the Briley gang. But that doesn't still doesn't necessarily mean that it was Anthony that committed the crimes, but I just kind of wonder that. So essentially, in summary, I'm not ruling it out entirely, but I do believe that Duncan told them what he knew. As far as whether he should have been executed is tough, because based on the Virginia Triggerman state laws, he shouldn't have been. But if you believe in the association laws that are in other states, then he should have been executed and received the same punishment as the others for even being present. So I think it heavily depends on your beliefs in the death penalty and how it should be executed. Pun intended. Yes, pun intended. Not. So I agree with you in the fact that I think that Duncan was telling the truth. Um, again, to as much as he is aware. But you also have to think about, okay, we don't know the exact circumstances of the interrogation, obviously. But it was a different time, and we can all agree that not all police practices were good. Especially in the case where they know who it is, and they're trying to get a conviction, and oh, they just so happen to be getting a confession. Hey, are you sure Anthony didn't do anything? Are you sure? Like, maybe you missed something you, you really want to say he didn't do it. You know what I mean? Like, they could have tried to pressure him into it, and he was like, no, bro, like... He didn't do anything, you know what I mean? So I think that maybe he could have, he had to think about that. Maybe he was like trying to get bullied into saying, you know, he was involved as well so that, or that he was a trigger man as well so that he, they could execute all of them. Cause they had an open and shut case. You know what I mean? Like they had, they had the conviction. It was just a, like, were they going to sentence them for the death penalty or for life. And so my guess is the cops were trying to get all of them to go to the death penalty because look at the horrendous, like look at the horrendous crimes that they did. You know what I mean? And then Duncan was sitting there saying, no, he wasn't, he didn't do it. It wasn't him, you know? So they're like, fine, we'll just settle with life. Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I also appreciate the fact that his parents were of course there, you know, to help with that interrogation as well. So I think, with the three of them being present, you know, hopefully that interrogation was conducted in an official, professional, and um, proper manner. <laughs> but it's hard to say. I mean, you're right. Like, that could have absolutely happened. We don't have any of them saying that it did or didn't. But that's because there was no question on their guilt. You know what I mean? Once Duncan told them what happened and the boys didn't deny it, well, you know, there was no... And then DNA started linking them to it. I mean, <laughs> there was no question on it. So you're right. It came down to a matter of conviction. Right. And hopefully it was, you know, prim and proper investigation. But if they did try to bully him, 
he didn't crack like so and he's 16 you know what i mean so like i think that he probably was telling the truth in that aspect because of that because i'm i'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt you know so even if they were doing a bad interrogation he still said you know no anthony was not part of like right so under any circumstance i mean right yeah how are you feeling about whether he maybe potentially committed other murders other than these ones that we've talked about today that they were all convicted of? Okay. I, I, I'm going to tell you what I want to say, but then <laughs> I'm going to follow it up with another statement. Okay. So I want to say, I don't think that he was involved because like involved with anything else because the brothers were on death row, right? And if they had that leverage of information to make them not on death row in order to, you know what I mean? If they gave up that information saying, oh, but he murdered so-and-so, that could get them off death death row. That could get them off of death row, but they didn't do that. However, (laughs) they also didn't defend themselves. So it could have been like a pride, like an honor thing where he didn't snitch on your brother sort of thing. So... And you know what? The other thing is, too, (laughs) that it could have just really been that Anthony, being the youngest of the brothers, was kind of along for the ride. Like, cool, I get a new TV out of this, you know? And, like, he didn't have those remorseful bones in his bodies like you should. He's still very much guilty of committing these crimes and hurting people and, you know, ransacking houses and setting fires and tying people up. And, I mean, he's very much responsible for his portion of that 100% I'm not taking away from that but it could have just been that he didn't really get enjoyment out of it or maybe the brothers didn't trust him to carry out the act in a successful way you know what I mean maybe they thought like oh he's a fuck up he's he's not going to do it right right or something or it could have just been out of pure enjoyment you know and maybe he just didn't enjoy it so the other brothers did it because they liked it you know and thought oh well we'll never snitch on each other so we don't have to force him to do it like they did with Duncan in the one where they were like, okay, it's your turn. You got to do it, you know? So I, it's hard to say what the actual reason was that he didn't kill anybody. Maybe had time gone on, maybe he would have, you know, we don't know, but yeah, I think I agree. Yes. And no, thankfully, thankfully we don't. Correct. Right. Yes, absolutely. It could have been also like, Oh, he's the youngest. He's weak. It could have also been, uh, he was like, yeah, listen, I'll do the rest of it with you, but that makes me nauseous as fuck. So you're going to have to do that part, but I'll be along for the rest of it. It could have been a number of right. things, you know what right. I mean? But, and it also could have been like, it wasn't his time yet right. or, you know, right. something like it could have just, it could have been so many different things why he didn't maybe get the opportunity. Right. But... There's still, you know, guilt with that. But also, I want to point out, he was the youngest. Those were his older brothers. That was the influence that he was given, you know. Absolutely. So, he was just, hey, my brothers my brothers are doing it, so it must be okay. You sort of thing, you know. Like, obviously, you know better, but. Right. Absolutely. You know, when you're, when the, the peers that you look up to are doing yes. it. Very much guilty, but maybe not of at least these murders. Agreed. Okay. So, I think... <laughs> That's a really tough question because it goes so many different ways, but I think it's so important to look at because he's the one that's still living and that 
you know, we know his name, we know where he's incarcerated at, like Duncan Megan's, I tried to find everywhere if there was anything about him being released or anything, but because he's being held under an alias name in a different state in an unknown location, I mean, it was so hard to find him. All I could find was that as of a few years ago, he was still alive and that they were still, uh, he was still going up for parole. So that's literally all I could find out. So I assume he's alive. (laughs) Okay. My last discussion question is, Specifically regarding the Briley brothers, so Linwood, James Jr., and Anthony, is this nature or nurture? I'm a little bit split here. I think the oldest two, nature, and Anthony, nurture. And I think that you can can guess why. Tell the people. They have it in their bones. <laughs> that's just in that's in them is um, a part of their DNA. I feel like to just be horrid persons. Yep. And but Anthony, I feel like he was more more nurtured into it. Um, he was more, you know, taking after his brothers and you know following their influence. The thing that drives me nuts about Anthony is that at no point in time did he try to stop them. At no point in time did he decide that he was not going to steal from the victims. At no point in time did he sit out and not, you know, call the shots or whatever. I mean, he was very much involved the entire time. He just didn't pull the trigger. And to me, like... I mean, he maybe have been following the suit of his brothers, but then why didn't he kill him? You know? So it's like, I get it. And I want to feel for him a little bit, but really, I just, I don't know. I think this is nature. I mean, like you said, it's in their bones and it's crazy because they were raised in a good home, but it was obviously in all of their DNA to commit these horrific crimes. And they didn't have any second thought or remorse, even Anthony. You know, so it's like, to me, I think had this gone on, I feel like Anthony would have been more involved than he was. I don't think it would have continued where he didn't commit any murders and, you know, but still continued to get money and stolen property and all that kind of stuff. I don't think that the brothers would have allowed that to continue. I think that he eventually would have been put in a situation where he had to be the one to pull the trigger and I don't think you would have had any remorse about it. That's just my thought. So with that in mind, I think that this is all nature due to the fact that they were raised in a good home. But I mean, even their own mother was afraid of them. So I don't know. I, I don't know their like bloodline and like what happened in their ancestry or where they came from. But yeah, this is how is it that you get all three brothers and all three of them were bad seeds? You know what I mean? That's not just happenstance. Right. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. I'm super interested to hear what our addicts have to say about these discussion questions this week. I mean, all weeks, but I feel like we've gone back and forth so many times on these, like just even between the two of us, like I'm really interested to hear what our addicts have to say. So let us know, do you think that it's nature or nurture? Do you think it varies based on the brother? Um, was it possible that Anthony was maybe nurture or were they all nurture? Let us know, um, head to Facebook, Search for Crime Addicts Pod 
first, the very first thing you're going to do is like, follow, share, all the good things. Then you're going to scroll down, see our Amazon link. Go ahead and use that on your way by. But you will see the discussion questions for episode number 34. And post in the comments, let us know what you think. The first discussion question is, how is it possible that Linwood only got one year of juvenile detention after murdering his neighbor in cold blood at only 16 years old? Number two, was Anthony involved more than what he was convicted of? Should he have received capital punishment? And number three is nature or nurture for the Briley brothers specifically. Let us know what you think in the comments. And we are super interested to hear what our addicts have to think about this case. It was a total toss up on some of these for me. And I think I could easily be persuaded one way or the other. All right, addicts, and with that, we'll wrap up this week's episode on the four Afro Stooges. Come back next week, addicts, for another CA meeting. And until then, stay alive, stay alert, and stay caffeinated. Stay caffeinated.